0: You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 9th of January 2023 on Monocle
1: 24.
0: Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi, coming up on today's (laughs) programme. The Brazilian government retakes buildings after pro Bolsonaro protesters stormed Congress, the Supreme Court and Presidential Palace, just over two years on from the U.S. Capitol riots. Meanwhile, in Peru, protesters demand the resignation of President Dina Boluarte, who took office only last month. Plus, we'll wrap up the latest business news and talk culinary diplomacy, how food can be used as a tool of statecraft. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. At least 300 people have been arrested in Brazil after thousands of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro supporters stormed Congress, the Supreme Court and Presidential Palace, then trashed the nation's highest seats of power. Hours went by before police managed to get control of the buildings. President Luís Lula da Silva has accused his predecessor Jair Bolsonaro of encouraging the uprising by those he termed fascist fanatics. Joining me now in the studio is Fernando Pacheco, senior correspondent for Monocle 24, and on the line in Washington, D.C., is Monocle's correspondent, Chris Gemmack. Welcome to the program. Fernando, could you first bring us up to date? How much is actually known of the course of events?
2: Well, it was quite, uh, well, I say surprising, but in many ways this has been expected for a few days that something would happen, because a lot of Bolsonaro supporters, they had camps in the city of Brasilia for quite a few weeks now. Uh, and from my understanding, one of the issues and the, f- and the fact why they invaded uh, the Congress in such a way, the police and the armed forces they were not very tough on that. They said, you know what? Uh, I was reading that even the Secretary of Public Security for Brasilia said, you know, the protests were peaceful. Uh, this just a few hours before uh, they invaded the Congress. So I think there was quite of lenience, uh, uh, you know, with with the authorities from Brazil, and that's why. By the, the city's governor, Ibanez Rocha, he's been removed uh, from his post for 90 days by one of our Supreme Court judges because he was silent. He didn't do much uh, to avoid, I mean, quite a disturbing scenes, Marcus. There was so much destruction, uh, actually. You know, it's it's a it's a beautiful building. A lot of artwork have been damaged uh, and much more as well. It's been about two years since the
0: U.S. Capitol riots. I'm wondering, you are saying that 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 it seems that the officials weren't really prepared for anything like that. But why is that considering that we saw we saw riots in Washington, D.C. after Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro was often seen someone like him? Exactly. and And,
2: and although Bolsonaro did kind of condemn the invasion, I mean... Let's be honest here. Here is a president or former president now who left the country on the 28th of December while he was still president Orlando. He just left. I mean, he never congratulated the new president properly. So, of course, when you have a leader who doesn't, you know, even admit that he lost uh, an election properly, I mean, I have to say, of course his supporters will, will go mad. I mean, literally, I think we can call them extremists. And, Marcus, one interesting thing here is, Brazil has always been a violent country, of course, there's a lot of crime, but we never had kind of, uh, you know, internal kind of terrorism. And I think in many ways uh, this new approach by some bolsonaristas can be classified uh, as terrorism. I was myself in Brasilia on the 26th, 27th of December, a few days before the inauguration. And when I was there, there was a little bit of tension in the air because the papers were reporting that there was a threat of bombs by some Bolsonaro supporters. Nothing happened. I think, you know, two men have been arrested for that. But there's been this tension and I mean, of course, there's been some violent protests before, but not at this scale, I wouldn't say. Let's also cross over to Washington, D.C., where I'm joined
0: by our correspondent, Chris Jermak. Chris, good morning to you. It's obviously easy to compare what happened in Brasilia to the Capitol attacks two years ago, but what did it feel like following these events in Brazil?
3: Um, Well, I mean, yes, it it is very easy to do, as you say, Marcus. And I think there are a lot of similarities. One of the things that's that's interesting to me, uh, about this, when you look at the similarities and and differences, is the role that the two leaders played? And as as Fernando was discussing there, of Jair Bolsonaro, of course, two years ago, Donald Trump played an even more central role, if you will, um, in what happened on the sixth of January because he was still, you know, in power at that point. It was, you know, he was he had not yet vacated the office. The inauguration had not yet happened, and he was actively trying. To stop that from happening. Um, And so, and he, for that matter, invited also his supporters to protest at the Capitol. Um, But what I find interesting as well uh, is. Other similarities are just, you know, the fact that police still were not necessarily as prepared as they should have been um, for for this to happen two years ago as well. But I think it also just goes to show, even though Bolsonaro, as Fernando was saying, uh, was you know somewhat silent through all of this and just kind of left the country once you start something into motion the way that Donald Trump did the way that Jerry Bolsonaro did as well it is incredibly hard to stop it both have these passionate supporters who will believe what what their leaders tell them about an election being rigged about about them being you know the rightful leaders of the country And that's what you what I think you saw in both cases is people who therefore, you know, come into the capital and are determined to do whatever it takes for their person to get back into power. And that really is just quite incredible. And obviously, otherwise, I mean, just just the timing of this was was incredible and prompted lots of reactions here in the U.S. uh, comparisons to January 6th, a number of, uh, you know, to show perhaps one, uh, one side of how we're still working through this over here in the United States, a number of Democratic uh, members of Congress tweeted also directly linking this, saying this was Trump-inspired what happened in Brazil, um, you know, kind of making that direct link to January 6th. The Republicans also condemned what happened uh, in Brazil, but of course made no mention of Donald Trump in their statements.
0: Chris, do you think various countries will now need to start thinking about how to guarantee safe transition of power from one leader to another? Are we seeing the birth of some kind of a new trend in political protests?
3: That's a good question Marcus. You know, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I remember being struck myself uh frankly at the time after January 6th that you looked at certain other elections and you even looked at certain far right movements that were not willing to go this route. I remember, you know, Marine Le Pen for example in France, you you almost wondered or I personally wondered at least why is she not going this route of, you know, saying that the election was a fraud or anything like that. But that didn't happen. So it's not something that is common necessarily even to sort of far-right or or uh, right-wing, you know, leaders who are trying to get elected to to higher office in different countries. So I do think in a way you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, what, what is... What is clear in the cases of Brazil and the United States is that, as Fernando says, uh, you know, this was telegraphed. We we knew this might happen because Bolsonaro, just like Trump, had had instigated this, had had encouraged the crowd, had said ahead of the election that it would be a fraud, that there was no way he could possibly lose. So. Whether it's a coalition or not, you, you just kind of have to take leaders at their word, I think. It's a little bit too easy. You know, I've been speaking to historians here in the United States as well, and it's just, uh, they've been telling, telling me that, you know, it's just too easy for us to get complacent, to imagine that these things cannot happen, that they won't happen, or if they have happened even here in the U.S. two years ago, well, that's in the past, and that's not going to happen again. So in that sense, yes, I think we have to listen to our public, we have to listen to our leaders, leaders, if you're seeing signs of this, if we're seeing, you know, clear signs and clear rhetoric along these lines, then you absolutely have to take action before and not after the event.
2: And I have to agree with Chris on that one, because even in Brazil, the inauguration of Lula was quite successful, Marcos. I mean, there was no problems with security. So there was a sense in the air. I mean, the Bolsonaro camps, they were still there in the city, but I felt... I mean even the media I mean everybody was talking how successful was the inauguration so I mean in a way it was expected but I think it, it caught a lot of people by surprise actually that this happened you know so abruptly and so violently as well. Just finally Fernando what is happening
0: next and 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 does this give us some kind of an indication what kind of a uh, president and Lula da Silva is going to have?
2: Well I think, I think after everything let's remember this happened overnight still very early in Brazil so let's see what's going to happen today but there will be uh, Lula declared a federal intervention in the capital of Brazil until the 31st of January so there will be a lot of police in the streets. Uh, as I said, the governor of the city has been removed from the post for ninety days. So it's quite a tense, but I think they're acting quite firmly. There's been quite a lot of arrests, as you've mentioned, uh, three hundred people. You know, it, it was a firm decision. Of course, uh, everybody's saying that this, this. I mean, I. I a third term for Lula in a way you'll be a problematic one for sure the country is very much divided but I have to add here as well it's not all bolsonaro supporters uh, you know that the, the, they were invading I think a lot of people condemned the way perhaps not as much as they they should condemn as well but perhaps this could also make bolsonaro weaker uh, in a way because it's been quite violent I think this scared as well many Brazilians
0: thank you very much for your insights Fernando and Chris they were Monaco's Washington DC correspondent Chris and Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Bocheca. To Peru next, where protests have continued in the wake of the removal and detention of former President Pedro Castillo. Over 20 people have died in protests, calling for the resignation of the new President Dina Boluarte. Juliaca Airport in the south of the country had to suspend operations, citing security concerns following a violent clash between protesters and police. Joining me from Lima is the re- reporter Jacob Kessler, and still with me in the studio is Monaco's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Jacob, could you bring us up to date? We've seen a weekend of unrest in Peru. What is the situation now?
1: Hi, how are you? So, yes, the situation is definitely uh, escalating, but I think it is important to emphasize that compared with uh, two week- two, three weeks ago when the protests first began, the situation is definitely a lot calmer. So when we saw the, the situation begin around December 8th, you know, three airports were shut down, thousands of people were stuck on Machu Picchu. We're not currently seeing that. So as you mentioned in your intro, Juliaca Airport uh, is shut down, but that isn't due to a takeover, that's due to sort of precautionary you know, measures as protesters have surrounded the airport. But, you know, big airports like Cusco, Arequipa are still running as of today. Um, obviously things can change, but as of now, um, it seems that authorities are having Things under control as compared to two or three weeks ago.
0: What has the current president Dina Boluarte done to try to control the situation?
1: So she's created a sort of emergency committee with the interior minister and the defense minister to try and control the situation. Um, You know, the attorney general has announced investigations into some of the deaths um, that have occurred in the first two weeks. Uh, You know, she gave a speech in Quechua, sort of trying to connect to her, um, you know, modest roots in a way to appeal to the mostly lower class people who are protesting. But what I'm seeing on the streets here in Lima is that none of this, uh, you know, none of her attempts to quell the situation have been successful until now. You know, people are still extremely angry and they don't plan on stopping uh, their protest activity until their demands are met, which are closure of Congress, Oluarte's resignation, and for some, the liberation of Pedro Castillo, who is currently in pretrial detention.
0: It's pretty clear that that the protesters won't get what they want. How much more do you think the current president can try to do to unite the country?
1: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's that much more she can do. I mean. You know, per- Peruvians are, especially those who come from the lower classes, especially those who come from the South, uh, from poorer backgrounds, you know, they're sick and tired of, you know, the instability that their country has experiencing. You know, Olarte is the you know, sixth president that Peru has experienced in the last five years. And, you know, what these Peruvians who are protesting are, are, are realizing is that regardless of who's in charge, you know, their situation, according to them, is, is not going to improve. You know, they had a lot of hope under President Castillo, who was one of them. But, you know, as they saw, according to them, you know, Congress, which is extremely unpopular in the country, did not let Castillo govern. So, you know, in, in my opinion, what I'm seeing, it doesn't seem like there's that much more uh, bulwark they can do.
0: So these protests have been going on for some weeks or already, and there's no sign that they would be ending anytime soon. How do you think the situation is going to continue?
1: yes yeah, so during the holiday period there was a lull in protest thanks to various truces um you know a lot of social organizations unions who are organizing the protests wanted to give the country a break partly uh, to let the economy recover uh, but that being said on january 4th the protests did continue in full force um and and yeah i mean f- from my perspective they're going to continue playing out uh, you know, until some, some concessions are made. So I think, you know, if some arrests are made of police officers who are responsible for the deaths, especially of the bystanders who are, who are killed and who aren't responsible for, uh, who weren't even protesting, but were killed by, uh, by police bullets, you know, if early elections, uh, in 2023 are announced. Which may give people, uh, protesters something to focus on as opposed to protesting. Maybe they could focus on electoral activity. But as of now, it seems like, you know, those are weeks away from happening or from anything from being announced so uh, you know the situation is unlikely to
0: change. Jacob Kessler in Lima thank you very much for joining us I'm also joined in the studio by Monaco's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco just a final thought from you Fernando we talked about the unrest in Brazil just a moment ago and there's been unrest in Peru now as well why does it seem that we are seeing more demonstration in in Latin America than we have in the past?
2: Well I think there are many reasons uh, for that Marcos. of course and One to say that I generally think people are, you know, fed up and tired. I mean, I think Latin America in the noughties that you had kind of a period of growth. But of course, this growth ended at some point quite abruptly. And I think people just became more demanding of their politicians as well. You know, so and and. Also, to add this, especially in a country like Brazil, for example, there's the level of polarization, where actually it doesn't really matter what are the policies. It's just that you become so attached to a political party or to a leader. And of course, every country in Latin America is different, but there are a lot of similarities. Just look at Brazil and Peru. A very difficult decade, a lot of corruption, scandals, impeachments. I mean, as as Jacob was saying, I think they had, uh, you know, six presidents in mm-hmm. five years. I mean, it, it, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and And even countries that are considered stable and rich in the region, like Chile, I mean, they had massive protests too.
0: Fernando, you are one of the most optimistic people I know. I wonder how optimistic you feel about the future of these countries, Brazil and Peru, for example.
2: My only optimism to the region is that the region, I, I do think people are more politicized, and, and I think it's not it's good to demand things more from politicians. I think that's what happened in Europe and, 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 and developed countries as well. So, in that sense, I can be optimistic. And, and actually, if I may end with something quite optimistic, there was a research recently, apparently Brazil was the most optimistic country for 2023. But that was before the invasion of the Congress. Oh, dear.
0: Fernando Augusto thank you very much. It's 12.18 here in London. Here is Monocles' Laura Kramer with the Days of the News.
4: Thanks, Marcus. United States President Joe Biden has made his first visit to the U.S.-Mexico border since taking office. The visit followed a recently announced policy initiative by the Biden administration meant to address an increase in undocumented border crossings. Israel's new far-right national security minister has instructed police to remove Palestinian flags from public spaces. Israeli law does not outlaw Palestinian flags, but police and soldiers have the right to remove them in cases where they deem there is a threat to public order. Australia's Prime Minister has promised to repair homes, replace property, and rebuild infrastructure as he toured remote communities ravaged by Western Australia's worst-ever flooding. The country's military helped airlift supplies and evacuate residents in cut-off towns. And China has carried out military exercises around the self-ruled island of Taiwan. Beijing initiated similar exercises late last month after the U.S. passed a defense spending bill that included support for Taiwan those are the day's headlines back to you marcus
0: thank you very much laura let's get a roundup of some of the day's business stories now with our friend Yuan potts from bloomberg you and we've been seeing mild weather across much of europe so far this month how good news is this could you bring us up to date about the energy situation in europe for example Hi Marcus, yeah. the danger of a complete economic meltdown, a core meltdown of European
5: industry has, as far as we can see, been averted. The words of Germany's economy minister, I think the relief in Germany, uh, stronger than uh, in many countries, that the, the energy crisis we were talking about back in the summer has not come to pass. Germany of course incredibly, incredibly reliant on Russian gas just a few months ago, but so far uh, things are looking pretty good, that very mild weather across much of Europe this month really helped helping uh, to uh, help with the demand picture. In Germany, storage facilities are currently about 91% full. Compare that with a year ago when they were only about 55% full before the country started to reduce its dependence on uh, Russian gas. Benchmark gas prices across the continent have now fallen uh, to just a fifth Of the records that were set back in August. Uh, There are of course some concerns that cheaper rates could stoke demand but usage so far still still seems to be declining and that is I guess uh, a silver lining from the rather weak economy we're seeing across Europe. Uh, European consumption expected according to Morgan Stanley to be some 16% below five-year average levels uh, throughout this year so so far the energy picture Looking pretty rosy for 2023 uh, uh, thus
0: far. Good, good. Now, you and we've seen another good day for shares in Hong Kong. What's driving that move?
5: Yeah, the Hang Seng Tech Index jumping another three percent today. The rally in uh, shares in Hong Kong has been really quite something. Uh, what's driving uh, gains today is uh, it looks like the the tech crackdown, which started back in uh, late. Uh, 2020 by Beijing is coming to an end. A senior official at the People's Bank of China said that the clampdown is now drawing to a close. Remember, this was a widespread crackdown on the tech sector, which the Chinese government thought was just getting too big for its own boots. Uh, that does seem to be easing, and that is adding to a whole host of things which are positive for investors in China, not least the easing of the COVID curbs, which, of course, are causing uh, a lot of uh, health problems in China, but that will eventually uh, be better for the Chinese economy uh, and the distressed property sector uh, heavily indebted, which has also been a big threat to the Chinese economy. Uh, we've had a lot of good news on that front as well. But today, uh, the tech sector uh, leading gains in Hong Kong are on signs that that crackdown is finally coming to an end.
0: Good news from Bloomberg's Yuan Potts. Thank you very much. It's 12.22 here in London. You are with Monaco 24 Monocle's annual soft power survey has hit the newsstands and in it we consider some of the established and bizarre ways that countries project themselves abroad perhaps among the most peculiar is the use of food as a tool of statecraft so what should you serve when you are trying to nail that peace treaty or land that trade deal early on the foreign desk Andrew Miller spoke to Lauren Bernstein founder and CEO of the culinary diplomacy project in Washington DC and Andrew began by asking Lauren to explain what culinary diplomacy actually means.
6: Food has been used as a diplomatic tool since the beginning of civilization. It's the best way to engage and welcome people and teach them about your culture. The State Department took it to a different level because what they did was they organized a group of about a hundred really fantastic US chefs from across the country, and tapped them as food ambassadors of the United States and our culture, and organized a program where we sent them out to our different U.S. embassies around the world to engage in public diplomacy efforts. You know, there are different ways that you can engage in culinary diplomacy. There's the government-to-government engagement, which is what you see when we have like a state dinner or state visit, which is another way that the State Department engaged their chefs. We would have a visiting leader. We would bring in a chef to do the meal that had some connection to that culture, whether the chef had that culture in their background or had just perhaps visited that country through our program. And they would prepare a meal that was American, but with influences from that visiting culture to respect that country and to show them that we put a lot of effort into the meal. So there's this government to government diplomacy, but then there's the government to foreign public, which is what the other part of the program was when we were sending these chefs to our embassies all over the world. The idea was to engage our chefs with The citizens of another country and do that using food to teach about our culture, but also to learn about theirs.
7: How do you decide what actually constitutes American food?
6: That's an interesting question. So one of the big goals of that program at the State Department was to dispel actually the myths of U.S. cuisine, uh, because a lot of people globally see the U.S. as just sort of a fast food nation, hamburgers and hot dogs, drive-thrus. A lot of genetically modified foods, there are all these stereotypes out there. And so the U.S., while we are absolutely a melting pot of cultural cuisines, which is what makes this country so special, we're also very regional in our cuisine. And that's something that's definitely not understood broadly overseas. And so a lot of what we try to focus on is showcasing our different regions and how that changes our cuisine just like every country, you know, every country has their own regional cuisines and so do we. And so maybe it's bringing a chef from the Pacific Northwest to showcase the particular ingredients that we use there and how that impacts our food and the food culture and, and also the People who have settled there, you know, the immigrant populations that also influence the food in that region. So there are a lot of really interesting things that influence our food nationally. And so that's what we try to focus on when we're showcasing American food.
7: A lot of this is obviously, as a lot of soft power projections are, about creating a good impression of a particular country and encouraging warm feelings towards it, which you can certainly do with food. But at the State Department in particular, how did you go about measuring the success of this? Did you ever see tangible consequences that you could see were definitely to do with the Diplomatic Culinary Partnership?
6: I think any time we would bring in a chef to engage with a visiting delegation to focus on you know a meal you could always see the change in tone of that gathering people love chefs presidents and prime ministers they're people and every time i would bring a chef to meet one of them you know who was preparing that meal there was always excitement from that leader and they always were excited to talk to the chef and engage with them and oftentimes knew who they were and had heard of them because there was some maybe connection to their country as well and It brings a different tone to the evening or the meal where it puts people at ease and they feel more comfortable. And any time you can do that in a diplomatic setting, you're taking a giant step forward. Because oftentimes people gather for these meetings and there's tension. And there are really important things that they need to talk about. But breaking bread is a very intimate thing to do together. And when you can influence that meal even further and make it special... If you can put your guest at ease and make them feel that they've been honored and respected properly, they're going to be much more open to whatever it is you're there to talk about. And so I've certainly seen that have an impact. In reading, you can see how some treaties, some negotiations, they happen over meals. They're signed over meals. It's usually that small, intimate gathering that really gets everybody on the same page and gets the documents signed at the end of the day, I think.
7: That being the case, how much research has to go into the personal preferences of upcoming guests? Have you ever known of a situation where broccoli was put on the plate of somebody who just was not going to eat it?
6: Yes, and they threw it across the room in a fit of rage. (laughs) No, that has not happened. Thank goodness. We are lucky at the State Department, as with every probably government entity that entertains, you receive a, a list of preferences from whoever's visiting. So you get a heads up on any dietary restrictions or any just food preferences of things they just don't like.
0: That was Lauren Bernstein, founder and CEO of the Culinary Diplomacy Project, speaking to Monaco's Andre Muller on the Foreign Desk. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlo Terabello and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan, and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Carlo Terabello will continue with great music and the latest news headlines shortly, we will also hear the latest editions of The Chiefs and Monocle Reads a bit later. And for more on the day's top stories, make sure to tune in for the Monocle Daily at 1800 London time, which is at 10am in Los Angeles. I am Markus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.